I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses, and the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, and they were drinking from the spiritual rock, which followed them, and the rock Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, that we can, would not crave evil things as they also crave. Not, do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and stood up and play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and twenty-three thousand fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure. Alright, this is an extended illustration from the wilderness wandering period. Notice the little word all in those first four verses found five times. So he's emphasizing, our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into most in the cloud and the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink. Now, he's going to make five statements about some of them in a moment. But think about these five all statements. They all experienced their salvation. They all left the bondage of Egypt into the freedom of the promised land. They all were baptized. Kind of an odd way to look at it. But you realize that they passed through the Red Sea, water on both sides. The cloud was above them. We know clouds made of water. So they had water above them, water on both sides of them. They were immersed. Never came in contact with the water, but they were surrounded by the water. And crossing the Red Sea was like a baptism in the sense that was their point of passing from bondage to freedom. Just as our baptism is the point where we pass from the bondage of sin to the freedom of the new life in Christ. So they had their baptism. They also had their Lord's Supper. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. They had their spiritual meal. Um, and they drank from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, they drank from a rock at the beginning of the wilderness in Exodus 17, at the end of the wilderness in Numbers 20. Evidently, the rock essentially accompanied the Israelites through their journey and provided water for them. And, and, and the idea of the rock really is an illustration of the stability and faithfulness of the Lord in contrast with their instability, unreliable character. God was a rock that was always with them. And that rock was Christ. The truth is, everything the Israelites received in the wilderness was given by Jesus who lived in their midst, so to speak, and, and was with them. So, all of them were delivered. All of them were baptized. All of them 
participated in the feast. And all of them were blessed by the presence of Christ as the rock that was reliable had provided for them. What was the result? <laughs> Nevertheless, verse 5, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. That is an understatement. When he says, with most of them, God was not well pleased, that actually meant 603,548 out of 603,550. Two out of over 600,000 were spared. Joshua and Caleb. Of the fighting men. All the rest of the parents. So when he says, when most of them God was not well pleased, well, yeah, 99.999, uh, however that works out. Uh, that's a rather shocking thing. Now you picture their bodies strewn over the wilderness. All of them saved, baptized, participating in a spiritual meal with the presence of Jesus as the rock. Of those, with almost all of them, God was not well pleased. Whoa! We're not just talking about a danger to our brethren that we cause to stumble. We're talking about a perilous threat to our own spiritual life and well-being. That is really powerful. So what happened? How did these all perish? Well, he says in verse 6, these things happened as examples for us. So we won't crave what they crave. Think about why these stories about the wilderness generation that perished were recorded. Did the, the recording of those stories help that wilderness generation? They were dead. They were written down to help us and warn us. What happened to them? Well, verse 7, idolatry. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. He chose to, to mention this story about the golden calf where they worshipped the idol and they ate a meal in honor of the calf. It's exactly what they were doing in their idol feasts. Eating a meal in honor of those idol gods. When they, back, when they, when they share in that idol feast, they're doing exactly what the Israelites did Back in Exodus 32, when Moses was up on the mountain and they had Aaron throw in the gold, now comes the gap. He says, don't be immoral, as some of them did. And he talks about that incident where Balak sent the Moabite women in the Israelite camp to seduce them into immorality and idolatry. And a lot of the pagan temples had temple prostitutes and immoral practices associated with the idolatry. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did. Verse 21 and 22. Are we going to provoke the Lord to jealousy? They were trying the Lord. Nor grumble as some of them did. 
I suspect the Corinthians were grumbling against Paul because of his hardline stance against participation in the idol feed. He picks out various situations from the, from the historical account of them falling in the wilderness that parallel their very behavior in the idol temple. And he says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Take this warning seriously. And the temptation and the way out go together. God is faithful. There are no impossible situations. You do not have to give in to the idolatry. Your temptations are not unique. And there's no excuse for your sin. When, when he says that every temptation is a temptation that all ways to come to that. And, and there's no temptation that's beyond your ability to overcome. And God always gives the way out. That gives both responsibility and hope. If I don't overcome the temptation, it's not that I could not. It's that I chose not to. There was the way out if I wanted. But it gives hope because there is a way out. And I'm not just fated to fall. Not my genes. It's not environmentally controlled. I could have chosen differently and I didn't. When we take away people's responsibility and we make sin a sickness and an emotional condition that's beyond, you know, spiritual health. We take away hope. Oh, you're not responsible. It just did. It's terrible what happened to you. Well, if it happened to me, I don't have anything to do with it. I can't stop it. The Bible teaches we are never forced to sin. God will not allow you to be tempted above what you were able. If you were tempted that way, God knows you could overcome it. He wouldn't have let you be tempted like that if you couldn't. So it's your fault if you give in. But he gives the way of escape you could have chosen. Here's the warning. The Israelite generation fell in the very same ways they're falling when they go to the idol temple. So he's preparing them for what he's about to say in 14 to 22. That he's going to say, eating meat sacrificed to idols is wrong, period. So that's where we're going. Thoughts and comments through verse 13. Yes, Jake. I've heard uh, people mention that, um, specifically with like, their emotions, where they've done something out of, uh, out of their emotions, uh, specifically like outbursts of wrath, basically, what they've done is because they got angry and they did something. I've heard them say, you know, I just couldn't help it. It just, I got angry and, and I did something. I'm like, that, no, that is absolutely false. The Bible teaches us that if you, if you sin in your anger, it's on you. Because any sin, every sin, and I just think, you know, I think we, we sometimes we get, we get too attached to our emotions and we let our emotions kind of rule us too much and we think that we don't, but in those certain situations, we really, we really do let our emotions kind of take over and we, we do sin out of our anger and we kind of just blame it on our emotions and we don't realize that actually we could have stopped it, we could have calmed ourselves. Yes. Yeah, we cannot say that I could not help. Amen. Other thoughts? Eric? It's interesting to me that Jesus is called the rock in the Old Testament because in order for God to bring forth water and quench the people's thirst, they had to be struck. 
in like manner Jesus was struck so that we could have our first point. But we sit here on the other side of the cross having received even greater blessings than they did. So how much, how much more serious would it be for us to spurn them? Okay, interesting thought. Stacy. It is endemic. Flee. Get away. It's dangerous. 
Paul appeals to their wisdom. He's asking for them to really think this through. He asks them seven questions, trying to get them to reappraise their idol meat eating. And the whole question ultimately is, if you go to the idol temple and you share the feast, does that fit within the definition of idolatry? Is eating idol meat idolatry? That's the question. He uses illustrations. He asks questions. What about the cup of blessing which we bless? The Lord's Supper cup. Don't we share in the blood of Jesus the bread which we break? Don't we share in the body of Christ? Aren't we united to Christ and one another? We do not partake of the Lord's Supper as some detached observer. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're joined together with Christ and His sacrifice. The Jewish sacrifices, verse 18. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? When you ate the Jewish meal, you became a part of the Jewish worship service. It was an act of worship. So you have a sacrifice followed by a meal, the peace offering, where you join the priest in eating of the sacrificial meat. That's exactly what they were doing in idolatry. They have a worship ceremony to the idol, offer the meat to the idol, and then share in the meal together. Now, so immediately when you start going down that road, Paul knows what do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? They're going to say, wait a minute, you're telling me there really is an idol God? You're telling me that an idol is something? Paul says, no. But I said, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. An idol does not exist. There is no such thing as an idol God. But there sure are demons that are promoting the idol worship. And when you worship in the idol temple, when you eat, when you eat that idol meat, you're engaging in idolatry, honoring the demons that stand behind you. There is spiritual significance to joining in the idol feast. You worship Satan and not God when you do that. Now, I think in general, a lot of times we miss the point. We take chapter 8, don't eat if it causes your brother to stumble and assume it's okay if it doesn't. No, it's not okay if it doesn't either, because it's idolatry. If you started out with that point, though, you wouldn't listen to the point about not hurting your brother. So we get a double principle teaching that helps us. We get to reflect on not doing something that injures our brother, and then we get to re reflect on the spiritual implications to ourselves of what we do in eating idols. Now he says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You can't eat both. It's morally impossible for somebody who has real fellowship with Christ to consent to have fellowship with demons. If you accept the Lord's invitation, you cannot in good conscience accept the invitation of Satan as well. He says, Are you, do you provoke the Lord to jealousy? You're not stronger than he, are you? You know, 
You can only afford to defy the power of somebody weaker than you are. You're surely not foolish enough to try to take on God. Don't eat the idol meat. Again, idol meat means eaten in the idol temple in connection with the idol feast. We are in a little bit going to deal with a couple of collateral questions. What about if the meat wasn't used in the idol feast, was wholesale to the butcher shop, or was bought by your neighbor and served you in a meal. What about that? It's not idol meat anymore. It's not the temple. It's not a part of an idol worship meat. The meat itself is not changed. The problem is the context of the idol worship service that it's eaten in. So when he talks about idol meat, he's not talking about meat market meat. He's not talking about your neighbor's house meat. Idol meat means eating it in the idol temple in the idol worship service and that is sinful. Now, think about some practical applications. Just because something's wrong because it hurts a brother does not mean it's right in itself. Here's something that wrong, is wrong because it hurts brethren. It's also wrong because it's wrong. Some things are like that. Uh, and we've got to evaluate the spiritual significance of what we do. There's a lot of slogans these Corinthians badly about. Glib slogans don't determine truth. The fact is, when you analyze the spiritual significance of going to the idol temple and sharing in that meal, that is idolatry. I don't care what kind of slogan you've got or how you try to justify it. And so he's condemning that. Now, that's where I say, then, that you've got... The idea you love your brother, you give up your rights, like Paul gave up his support, gave up his freedom. Paul, not Paul, uh, Illustrations, you know, the Ispian games, the wilderness generation are illustrations of loving God. Don't exercise self-control to not do, to not practice idolatry. And uh, then you've got those questions uh, about the butcher shop and the neighbor's house. That's the overall idea of chapters 8 through 10 as I see. And certainly, I would, I would stand very uh, forcefully on the principle, I believe is wrong. It was wrong in Acts 15, it's wrong in Revelation 2, and it's wrong in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. I did not grow up believing it that way, but I see no other way to see it after you look at those passages. Thoughts and comments? Yes? I doubt that it relates to Romans 14 in terms of the situation. I think it's more likely in Romans 14 that we're dealing with matters of Jew-Gentile relationships. And you could still import idol meat into that as a possibility, but I think it's probably not. I think we're probably dealing with maybe unclean meat. From a Jewish perspective. Yeah. Uh, I also come into to, uh, contact with people who um, who think it's fine to listen to instrumental music that is that is offered up as worship and praise to God, and they think that it's fine for you to listen to that type of music, to partake in that type of music. 
So if we define that, I mean, if we would say that that type of uh, that type of worship is sinful because it's not what God has commanded, it goes beyond what God has commanded, um, then if we partake in that, that's exactly what He's saying you're doing here. Is you're partaking, you're listening to this something that is sinful. And so if you, if you take the same principle, apply it to something that is still sinful today, I think you, you still get the outcome of it's not a good idea to do that. Um, now, I'm not saying that there's, there's songs that talk about godly principles and things like that. There's a difference between that and actually worshiping God. Worshiping God using musical instruments is sin. And so if we partake, we yoke ourselves with that, we fellowship with that by listening to it, and getting encouraged through the lyrics and everything because they are they're, they're doing it because they are trying to worship God as these are trying to worship an idol it's it's sin so if you're trying to listen to that you are becoming one you're partaking in that I'm not going to take a position on listening to music uh, with instrumental accompaniment but I don't think it's a parable uh, because he's not talking here about watching an idol worship service. That would be a second question. He's talking about participating by eating the idol meat in the idol worship service. So I don't think that's a parallel. I'm not trying to necessarily say it's right or wrong to listen to the songs with instrumental accompaniment, but I don't think you can say that's participating in the same sense he's talking about here, which is to actually eat the idol meat in the temple. Whether or not you can go to the temple and observe an idol service might be another question. Um, but I don't know that this passage is def- definitively going to define that. At least that's not the main thought here. What he's really dealing with is eating the meat sacrificed by Yes, I think because they knew the idol gods didn't exist, so to them, it's okay because since there's no such thing as an idol god, they're not really doing anything. I think that was their argument. Yes? I think there are plenty of practical applications. Trying to come down to what they are is more difficult and define them out properly. Certainly, in general, this is saying I can't share in participation in doing something that's wrong. Even though I may say it doesn't amount to anything, I don't think I could participate in a wrong worship practice. Um, Even though I might say, well, I don't think it really means anything. You know, but but I don't think I could I could join in with the activity that was that was not a proper worship activity. I think there's probably more application than that, but I think that's a direction that would be appropriate to go with. Certainly, yes. I think it certainly would be wrong to join with the instrumental music and sing to its accompaniment in that church. I would agree with that. I think that would be a fair parallel. And I would have to say I couldn't join in that activity. I couldn't say, well, for me, this is just singing. Because it's a part of the musical worship of that church. Just as I couldn't say, well, to me, it's just me. I haven't connected with the idol. 
well, you're there in the idol temple, and this is is a part of the involvement in the sacrifice offered to the idol. Hard, hard, you know, things to distinguish, and you're welcome to contest those if you're ready. So we're really trying to understand the principle 
and say, is this really an honest, fair application of the principle? That, that's a challenge, but I think that's what we're trying to do. So, that's through verse 22. Now we have a couple of, or maybe one sort of appendix section, because there are some other issues. Eating in an idol temple is not the only question. It was the question, eating meat sacrificed to idols, but there's some supplementary material about some other settings and situations that will arise, and what do you do in those? So uh, let's work on uh, 1023 to 11 1. All things are lawful, but not all things are proper. All things are lawful, but not all things are proper. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the market, let him ask him a for conscience. For the earth is the Lord, and all contained. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for your conscience. I mean not your own conscience, but the other man. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or the Greeks or the church of God. Just as I also please all men all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many. Okay, so they come back to their slogans, all things are lawful, and Paul says, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Concern for your brother takes precedence over your self-gratification and your own desires in that. And then he, he comes down to a couple practical situations. You go to the meat market. Evidently it was a practice for the idol temple to wholesale leftover meat to the butcher shop. And the butcher sells it as meat, not as idol meat. Eat anything that's sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. You know, this is addressing the question of food of doubtful origins. You know, and Paul gives the go-ahead on anything outside of an idol's work. When the meat was sacrificed to an idol, it was not somehow permanently poisoned. The meat didn't change. The problem is the context of the idol worship service. If you take that meat out of that context, it's innocent meat. So he says... You know, ask no questions for conscience sake. You know, when you buy at the meat market, the question arises there at the shop, when you're the guest of another, it arises at the table. And really the conscience is not involved. This is not a matter of right and wrong. And the principle is, offering to the idol doesn't change the intrinsic nature of the meat. You know, Idol meat means in idol temple in the worship service of the idol. It leaves the idol arena. It's not idol meat anymore. So the problem with eating meat in the idol temple wasn't that something changed in the, in the meat. It was 
the participation in idolatry. As long as idolatry is not involved, then you can receive God's gifts with gratitude because the earth belongs to the Lord. This then protects the Christian from being overly scrupulous. You don't have to go back and research the prior history of every piece of meat you eat. You know, you can buy whatever you want, carte blanche, at the butcher shop. You don't need to give uh, the butcher the third degree over where he got the meat. Just eat it. That's all there is. What if you go to an unbeliever's house? If you want to go, you can go. Not wrong to go eat a meal in an unbeliever's house. That's okay. And you can eat what they serve you without conducting inquiries as to the source of the meat. It's not a matter of conscience. Eat what they put before you. Don't develop too deep an interest in the history of your dinner. You don't have to get a complex about it. It's okay. Just eat it. You know, it's fine. But, what if somebody comes along and says, this is meat sacrificed to an idol. Now that changes things a little bit. We're not sure who said that. Was this another guest who was passing along the fruit of his research? He's been in the, in the quick kitchen inquiry. Is this a Christian servant, maybe, who's waiting on the table, who's informing his Christian brother so that he'll know not to eat it? Is this a host, out of the courtesy to the believer's convictions? He didn't want the believer to violate what he believed was right, so he lets him know. Is this some kind of text? Some non-believer seeing that the Christian's really not going to eat? I don't know. But obviously, if somebody says that to you, it matters to them. And so he says, if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, don't eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you, and for conscience sake, his conscience. You know, if food matters, when it's going to hurt somebody else. It doesn't change your conscience. It doesn't mean you think it's wrong, but you're concerned not to violate his conscience. You can forfeit your eating. You don't forfeit your conviction. You don't suddenly think it's wrong, but you give up eating it for the sake of your brother or for the sake of even the non-Christian host. Uh, how can you give thanks to God for something that hurts somebody else? So, eat anything from the meat market. Eat anything in your neighbor's house unless somebody said, this is meat sacrifice and idol. Then you realize it matters to them. There'll be a stumbling block to them and just don't eat it in that situation. The principles in verse 31 do all to the glory of God. I mean, everything we do, absolutely, should be done for God's will and God's glory. And two, Give no offense to Jews, Greeks, or the church. You know, don't hurt somebody else. Don't make it for a, more difficult for a non-Christian to turn to the Lord. Don't make it more difficult for a Christian to serve the Lord. Paul's a good example. He seemed to benefit others for their salvation. He wasn't trying to please himself. Christ gave himself up to death. And so we ought to be willing to give ourselves up. Self-sacrifice ought to be our norm. So we glorify God and we seek to serve and help others in their glorifying God. Those are the principles. Love God, love your neighbor. Based on those principles, 
We don't eat idols. We do eat butcher shop meat or neighbor's house meat as long as somebody's not going to be hurt by that spiritually. That's what I see in that. That may have opened up who knows what. Uh, comments and questions? Jason. How is it that we hurt the unbeliever by eating the meat when they inform us? Is it by us giving the impression that we may condone idolatry? Or how is it that we hurt? I suspect so. Either giving the impression that we condone idolatry or maybe even uh, giving the impression that we don't care. It's okay for us to be idolatrous because we like the meat. It's almost... Being in, uh, seeming inconsistent with our principles and uh, sort of like, yeah, you're a Christian when you're at the church building, but now that you're at my house and you're hungry, you want to eat the meat. Something like that, perhaps. Good question. Yes, Han? I've always been a little bit confused about the rhetorical questions in 29 and 30. Because in the previous section, the answers to all those questions seem pretty obvious. But when he says, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? He seems to be saying, my liberty is determined by someone else's conscience. I will give up those things. But why am I denounced? Because that for you give thanks, I don't really understand that. Well, I think in verse 29, he's, he's giving up his eating. He's not giving up his liberty. You know, he is not surrendering his conviction. He's not saying, I believe it's wrong to eat. He's simply not eating for the sake of his brother. It's not changing his conscience. It's not changing his understanding. He believes it's right to eat it. But he's not eating it, not because he's suddenly become convinced it's wrong, but because he doesn't want to hurt his brother. And uh, I think in verse 30 it's a little bit different. How can you give thanks to God for something that hurts your brother? I think that's the idea there. Talk verses. What well, is this challenge? And, you know, you, you have to just kind of think it through. You're trying to kind of follow the train of thought. Other thoughts? Emily. Um, I think this applied to you today with, uh, like, if Someone else. 
Whereas it would be wrong to knowingly buy stolen merchandise. I think that would even be illegal. <laughs> and, uh, or to use something that was pirated. And so if this becomes a question, well, I just won't ask, so I won't find out, and that way I can do it, that's different than not asking the question when it's perfectly okay to eat. The only question would be if it hurt somebody else. So I don't think that's fair. Other questions or thoughts? Yes, thank you. We don't always know, but that's right. So it's appropriate for us to ask for forgiveness for hidden sins, secret sins. We should want to know so we can change. You know, it's not, a, not well, I'll just close my eyes and hope I don't find out. We want to please God, but it's true that even with our best efforts, we may sometimes not know. Other thoughts? Okay, I think we'll take a break here and uh